0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 76 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I am joined by my friend Nick Brown, a PhD candidate in Egyptology at UCLA. His excavation experience includes working with archaeological sites in Aswan, as well as funerary sites in Luxor, Amarna, and the Sudan, and his research interests include royal funerary material culture from the New Kingdom, as well as the use and perception of ancient Egypt within modern contexts. In this episode, we spoke about whether all Egyptologists are in fact obsessed with mummies and tombs, how to get onto an archaeological fieldwork project in Egypt, and learn some cool insights into his current dissertation research on royal funerary archaeology. I hope you enjoy this episode and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thank you so much for joining me, Nick. I've been really excited about this conversation for quite a long time. So I want to get right into it and start with what I hope will be a pretty easy question for you, which is just like, how or when did you discover your love of learning for the ancient world? Like, I feel like you know, some people start young, some people start a bit older. So yeah. When did you get to yeah, do it? Yeah,
2: for sure. Well, yeah, Lexi, thank you so much for having me. It's really, really nice to be here um, and get to chat with you today. Um, yeah. When did I fall in love with the ancient world? So I, the story I remember, or at least what I always tell people is I have always had like a fascination with ancient Egypt. Um, I remember being a kid, probably about six or seven and just being kind of obsessed with mummies and pyramids and golden treasure and the whole story of King Tut and everything. And so that kind of really kickstarted this passion um and this love of ancient history that I have. And as I got older, um, you know, all throughout middle school and high school, um, I realized I love history and I love traveling. So, I mean, archeology span is kind of really the perfect job for that, right. To pursue those passions. Um, and then really for me as an adult, it really solidified, you know, wanting to be an Egyptologist and an archeologist working in Egypt. When I did my first trip to Egypt in 2020, um, as a 20 year old. So I went over there, I was doing an archaeological field school and not only fell in love with ancient Egypt even more, but I actually fell in love with modern Egypt and the modern culture and the people and the place and everything. Um, so I think that's kind of the, the the long journey, I guess, of how I got to where I'm at today. But yeah, it it definitely all started when I was a little kid, just reading books on ancient Egypt and just all these pictures of these fascinating kind of objects and sites and everything. Did
1: you find it hard to find, like, good books on ancient Egypt? Because I remember, because I definitely hit the, like, sixth grade class, amazing history teacher, and then suddenly I was all about pyramids and mummies, and I was like, I'm going to be an Egyptologist. She thought I was crazy, but, like, crazy dedicated, so she was like, sure, here's a book, but, like... I asked for more than that one book and she couldn't find anything. And I was like, Oh, I guess this is fine.
2: I, you know, so I was really lucky. My, my family was really good at like giving us books as kids and stuff. And so I think once they knew that I was really into ancient Egypt, they just kind of bought me any book that they would find in a bookstore at a garage sale, a thrift hand uh, shop, you know, whatever uh, they'd get me all these different books. So I had a full range, um, uh, of books by the time I was in sixth grade. So I had everything from like the kids coloring books all the way through to like, actually some like more scholarly books that I even still use today at 33. Um, and I remember, you, you know, you mentioned sixth grade and starting to learn about ancient Egypt. I remember when my sixth grade history class started the Egypt unit, I brought in about three or four bags of books to my teacher Mm -hmm. because I just was so enthusiastic and so excited about the subject. And so I remember she was a little overwhelmed when I was, you know, I told her the day before, Oh, bring in some books. And I think bringing three or four bags of books was a bit much, but yeah, no, I had a great little collection of Egyptology books growing up.
1: You know, we didn't have the books, but what we did have was a really like interactive experience in that class. Uh, I, I still can't believe she got away with some of the stuff she did. I don't know you know, the kind of liberties she was able to take with her lesson planning. But yeah, we we did the whole like, bring a bed sheet in and it's your like toga. And then you can wear any kind of like fun headdress if you made it yourself in like arts and crafts or whatever. And uh, yeah, so I remember we chose like Egyptian names. And then our like sort of our tables were like group where you could have five students around a table. And we became like different little ancient like cities, and
2: uh, oh, I love that. Yeah, some of my favorite classes growing up. I mean, granted, I'm biased because I just love history, but really, were my history classes because the teachers, the ones that I can think of, like Mr. Carlton from seventh grade, you know, he was just so into teaching history and he had such a great unit for or lesson plans, I should say, for for the different cultures and histories that we studied. And we were always building models or doing arts and crafts or kind of like you're saying too, doing these different group projects. And yeah, I'll, I'll certainly always remember Mr. Carlton, um, and his classes. And yeah, I had one teacher, um, we built sugar cube pyramids. If I, that must've been elementary school for whatever history class that was. But of course like ants came and attacked them like later in the week. So <laughs> felt or having to clean up afterwards. But that's like a memorable history project I remember doing too. So yeah, exactly. It's, I think so important for these history teachers, especially with younger kids to make it more engaging by doing these kind of craft projects or um, group activities or, you know, more than just memorizing dates and places and people names.
1: Yeah. And especially with a mythology like Egyptian mythology, because I mean, I I suppose if you're comparing to like, greco-roman mythology i suppose it looks a bit bonkers on its head you have all these anthropomorphic gods and you're like what is this about and i do admire the like what she like uh she had a stage like let's call them plays to be polite um so yeah we like Acted it out for our classmates, the different Egyptian myths. And it was like the most bizarre thing because we'd be like, so wait, I'm supposed to be like this weird thing? And she'd be like, yeah, 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 just go with it. Um And so, of course, we got... i My group got um basically the original myth with Osiris and Horus and Seth. And I was like, oh, no, we have to act this out. What are we going to do? Um So I was Isis. And I remember I basically shredded paper with some scissors like ran around the room tossed them everywhere and then ran around the room again picking them up and being like this is fine i'm going to tape them together um yeah that was a good way to to wrap our heads around the mythology oh I, totally
2: sure it makes for some interesting plays too
1: <laughs> yeah like the oh, goodness me the, i will never forget her sixth grade miss parkins yeah so when we when people outside of the field or any ancient field, I suppose, think of Egyptology. I feel like their mind is going to jump right to mummies and pyramids, one or the other. Is that actually what the majority of people in the field are obsessed with or... Is is that sort of exterior perception not entirely true? I
2: unfortunately fall into the category of someone who is obsessed with mummies and pyramids and tombs and, you know, even royal kind of kingly burials and stuff. I mean, that's the center of my research. But fortunately for the field of Egyptology, the scholars and the academics and the people who are working in the field that's not the focus of their research. And I think that's a great thing. That's a good thing. There's a lot going on right now with different studies of things like women's rights and kind of women's roles in ancient Egypt, um, social histories. So what was life like in Egypt for, let's say, like the quote, lower classes, you know, the people who weren't recorded, you know, in hieroglyphic texts or on temple walls or, you know, who built huge monuments to themselves, these tombs that they were then later buried in. So there, there's there's a great movement to kind of study those aspects of ancient Egypt. and And there's all kinds of other stuff too. I mean, maybe not as popular, but things like ancient ecology and what was the landscape and the geology and geography of Egypt like. You know, trade routes, how were people moving, you know, ethnic, uh, migration, uh, migrations between different people groups and stuff in the ancient world. And so, yeah, there, there's a lot more to ancient Egypt that can be studied than just, you know, mummies and pyramids and gold. So, which is great. I think that's, that's awesome. It's time to kind of rewrite some of these history books and change the perspective of how we study ancient history. And then how is that ancient history? from a different perspective, useful for understanding our current histories and where we're going as a society and as a group as well.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and that, that brings up another question, which in classics, I have noticed a weird trend where people seem to be very sectioned off into specific time periods. I feel like the majority of people you'll meet, they say, oh, I only do fifth century or Fourth century. It, so so it's, it feels like from the outside, if you're coming into classics, it feels like you're looking at, okay, um, classical, classical, Hellenistic, or Bronze Age collapse, and then you don't really hear of anything. I feel like Egypt would be susceptible to falling in the same thing where you say, okay, maybe you do um, like early pre-dynastic, you do Tut, you do Amarna period, and then you do Ramesses. There's obviously a lot more than that. So for someone who's in the field, though, does it seem like people do tend to go toward the the bigger names or the bigger things? Or is it actually more evenly dispersed than we think it, it is? Yeah,
2: I think it's definitely dispersed. Um, I think certainly like classics, from what it sounds like, as you're describing it to me, we do all kind of fall into our own niche or different time periods of what we like to study. So for me, I'm very much a kind of new kingdom uh, time period to study so what is that about 1500 to like 1000 bc something like that and even and a little bit later the end of the bronze age into the the start of the iron age kind of that collapse and that kind of startup of 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 a new era so that's definitely where i fall in i think i've got different colleagues who well i I don't even think i know i've got colleagues who you know certainly focus on kind of prehistoric or pre-dynastic egypt people who like who love the old kingdom. So the, the kind of pyramid age, we've got colleagues at UCLA, where I'm studying focus on like the late period and kind of like the Persian occupation of Egypt. So, so there's a whole spectrum, people who are specializing in different time periods and stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, I think for maybe the younger scholars, you know, certainly the Egyptologists in training, let's say, easier and maybe more tempting to fall into those categories of like Amarna period, Ramses the Great, King Tut- in common, you know, all these kind of major figures. But I think what really kind of happens is you start to kind of learn more and maybe even hone your craft in a way is you start to find the things that interest you uh, beyond kind of those major figureheads. Um, and you start to kind of pursue those research interests a bit more. So I think even with my story, you know, I was very much obsessed with King Tut growing up. He was a focus, a small focus, a small part of my master's thesis that I did. Even the PhD, I've got a whole chapter just dedicated to Tut. But throughout my PhD research, I learned and found the course of doing a seminar on the workman's village of Daran Medina that I'm really interested in kind of that social history and like these workmen who were hired to build the tombs of the royal kings. And so, I've done this deep dive throughout my dissertation research into kind of the social histories of that group and those people and trying to to look at these kind of great big monuments, right? The Valley of the Kings and all these tombs that they have there, trying to look at those monuments through a different perspective, um, kind of through the stories of the workmen who created those tombs and which are often unwritten, you know, we have all the admin documents and the receipts and kind of the journals of these workmen, but, but there's a whole narrative of how those tombs were built. That's not really normally talked about in the history books. And so I think with my research, that's one of the, one of the things that I've become interested in, right. Trying to branch out a bit more beyond King Tut and the golden mask, and everything.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have, I mean, you get to be in the fun position where you're still in school, you're not, you know, entrenched in the career yet. When you tell people, though, that you do Egypt and you do mummies, because you like these topics. You know, How often do people Kind of assume you might do Something later like like how I guess Fast would people default to oh So do you do tut versus something Like asking you whether Oh so tell me about the great pyramid Are you specialist and do you do Kufu and you know c- completely Opposite end of history so Yeah
2: no uh, you know most Often the question that I get asked By people and whether they're serious or They're joking it kind of scares me when I don't Know for certain is you know, did aliens build the pyramids? So I think that pyramids are always like almost one of the first things that I have to talk about. You know, Tut, I think is, is another pretty popular one as well. And so pyramids usually are the focus, what most people first tend to ask me and stuff. And then I, I will get people, uh, you know, as you're asking about and hinting at that will then kind of transition to like, well, what do you, what do you study in ancient Egypt? And um so I'm able to talk a little bit about my research in the Valley of the Kings and with these royal burials and stuff and which is something that people maybe they don't know much about it but they might be familiar with the Valley of the Kings I think beyond the pyramids at Giza I think the Valley of the Kings probably is like Egypt's second most famous archaeological site if not most famous but it's it's definitely up there in top 3 you know so people are sometimes familiar with that as well yeah i mean it's great being in a position where I'm so passionate about the subject, I'm able to kind of share that with other people and and go beyond, right, like Tut's Golden Mask, or the the Great Pyramid of Hufu, or I don't want to say stereotypes, but kind of these like really popular things in Egypt for the general public. And I'm able to kind of expand upon those and talk about different aspects. Um, I think one of the stories I always love sharing from ancient Egypt is, you know, I tell people when we're talking about Egyptian history and and what it was like back then that, you know, the ancient Egyptians were very much like us. I mean, they were people too. They, they got hurt, you know, emotionally, they fell in love, they had disputes with their neighbors. And one of my favorite stories to tell is always the um, story of Paneb, kind of the villain of Daryl Medina. We have these different texts that talk about him. And, you know, there's one, Accusation made against him in a village court case where he got drunk and was sitting on the town wall and was throwing, you know, beer jars at people who were walking by. And so I love to just tell the story and talk about, you know, Paneb, the town drunk, like everybody has the town drunk, you know, or it can relate to that story. So I think that's just one of the many examples of how there's a human aspect to ancient Egypt that we even today can connect to.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to sort of humanize because I for people who just study the ancient world in general, I think we all will find that we people do try to separate them and say, oh, well, that's clearly them. And then there's clearly us over here. And we're not the same. Don't do that. It's a bad trend. It's a bad thing. Don't separate. They're not aliens. Um, we are, we are just the, the continuation of uh, the evolution of this. So I, I do love how you can find these, these um, points to, to go off of. I, I am curious, though, but because it's also it's Egypt and it's special and people have this special fascination for it. How often do people ask you, oh, you're an Egyptologist, so can you take me to Egypt? Can you get me into the tombs? Can you show me all the places? Like, how often do you find people asking for things like this? I,
2: you know, unless they're really close friends or family, I don't actually get asked that question too often. I have one friend who's really interested to join me on an archaeological excavation. Um, and he's been for a few years now asking, oh, please take me, take me, take me, you know, and, and that's a little bit more tricky and complicated. I'd love to just take anyone. Um, but there's a whole system of, you know, for excavation work, there's a whole system of, Paperwork and permissions and bureaucracy that you have to go through before you can actually do any field work in Egypt, which I think is good and important. You know, I have had a few friends over the years ask, "Oh, can you show me around Egypt and stuff?" And nine out of ten times, I'm willing to say yes and and more than happy to show them around. I had a great friend who came last fall, um, and we did about two weeks in Egypt together, and that was just super fun. Got to show him Cairo and Luxor and Um, I'm actually planning a trip the first time that they're going to come for my parents and some family friends of ours to come in December and January. So they're going to come for a couple weeks over the new year. So that'll be great. I'll show them kind of Alexandria, Cairo and Luxor. And I think for the people that matter in your life, it's it's worth it to me to show them around Egypt and I'm happy to do so. I love Egypt. Like I lived there for over six years now and you know, the people and the country and the food is just so great. And I'm, you know, I love ancient Egypt, but I'm just as passionate about modern Egypt. So for me, it's like really a joy to be able to show people around and really kind of show off Egypt and how, you know, a wonderful place it can be.
1: Yeah. I was finally able to get myself there for the very first time in 20 november of 2021 yeah i guess as as someone who's lived there studied there who kind of splits his time there i think a lot of people are kind of curious you know we hear about excavation work in egypt and and other places but i think there's the slight impression that you know oh it would be much easier to go somewhere like greece or italy or i don't know jordan even i have no idea but um is it actually as hard as we think? Is it a lot easier? I know the landscape for permissions has changed a lot as well. So I'd love to know, you know, is it what is does what that whole sort of thing look like now?
2: My recommendation for people who are visiting Egypt, who either are going for the first time to Egypt for my advice for people who are going there for the first time and specifically to Egypt is either. Generally go with someone, you know, who knows the place well, or sign up for one of the group tours, um, or at least have a guide that could like show you around and help you out. It is totally possible to go do it on your own there. Egypt is catered to tourism. So, you know, there's plenty of people who speak English or speak enough English to help you get around if you need it. You know, my experience over there has been very safe. And I think Egyptians are very hospitable. They're very kind to strangers. Um, they want people to come visit. You know, when you go visit Cairo, it's an overwhelming city. It's, it's overcrowded. They've got a huge population. It's a sprawling city. I think it's larger than the size of LA. Um, you know, in terms of scope. Um, traffic is a nightmare and stuff. So, so those are some of the difficulties to handle. Um, for me, the language barrier when I first moved there was really hard, you know, especially living there. Right. I think if you only stay at hotels and are doing tourist sites and museums, you'll be okay in terms of English, but yeah, trying to live over there is challenging just with the language barrier and stuff. Um, so that's something to keep in mind. And the culture shock for some people, I think, you know, it is a predominantly Muslim country. And so these are things to keep in mind when you go visit. So that's usually my rec is, you know, either go with a group where you're not really going to have to plan or think much, or at least go with someone who knows the country, who knows the place and knows the language. That's certainly helpful too. But all that said, I mean, it's such a great place to go visit. Um, I, again, I can't speak highly enough of how much I love it there and how really I think everybody at some point needs to go and needs to see the pyramids. So,
1: I mean, um, I agree. And I mean, these are really helpful travel tips because uh, I, I definitely didn't know anything about going. And I, I don't know if I would have been brave enough to go if I hadn't reached out to some friends and colleagues who could set me straight. So um, definitely agree. Cause I would have been quite overwhelmed. Yeah, um,
2: definitely. I think today too, with things like the Uber app, for instance, like that certainly helps tourists who are on their own, like get around Cairo and stuff. I think they've got Uber and Luxor. I'm not entirely sure, but certainly around Cairo, (laughs) they have it. And that's helpful. You know, Google Maps and everything too. That's getting better and making it easier to travel. Google Translate even, uh, though the Arabic version doesn't work that great. So just keep that in mind. Um, It's decent, but, you know, don't rely on it. Yeah, it definitely, I think like you're saying too, Lexi, it certainly helps talk with people who've been there, who've lived there, who work there, who know the country, to at least give you an idea of what to expect if you are planning to travel there on your own. For
1: sure. And now if I wanted to go join an excavation there... You know, is that process
2: easy, hard? That process is certainly a lot more difficult. um, And there's several factors to it. I think in terms of kind of the groups that are organizing those expeditions, you know, there's always a permissions list that they have to put together with names and there's background checks and things that have to happen. So... If you were interested in a dig, you'd have to reach out to a dig director and see if it would be possible to join. That's challenging because often the digs are strapped for funds, are looking for people who are involved with um, excavations already or who have excavation experience. Um, because again, if you can only take a limited amount of people, you want kind of that skilled workforce, right on, on the dig. And, and then, yeah, there, there's all all sorts of permissions and background checks and security clearances that you have to get with the Egyptian government. So there's a whole application that goes through the ministry of tourism and antiquities and the Supreme council of antiquities. That's, that's one application. And there's a whole separate application that goes through the ministry of interior, For kind of all your background security clearance so what i always tell people who really are passionate about archaeology and really want to dig or get some experience in egypt the kind of the best way to do it or to approach it is to first get excavation experience in the country that you're at you know try to sign up for a local dig try to start learning your skill sets you know where, where you're at, you know, on an excavation in your backyard, if you will. And then you can reach out to project directors for sites that you're interested to work at and see if it'd be possible to join. And at least then with your kind of introductory email, you can also say, well, I've also excavated here. I've got this work experience. So it's not just, you know, a random... Kind of person reaching out to a dig director and saying, hey, I want to dig in Egypt. I'm interested. Another option, too, is to always sign up. There are there are very few at this point, but there are some excavation field schools that occur in Egypt and you could always sign up for one of those. They're they're quite expensive, so it costs quite a bit to join. But you're essentially helping to fund your your way onto the dig um and to get that experience as well i did it in college most archaeologists working in egypt today have done it i don't want to say it's a rite of passage but it's it's a way to to get your foot in the door if you will
1: yeah so. i mean and it, it I, I don't know it just it seems much more complicated if i want to go dig in egypt than if i wanted to go to greece or italy i guess as an outsider my perception is it's a lot stronger in egypt and like can we call them just blanket white people have uh, had their hand more on like egyptian archaeology for a longer time than native egyptians so is it that they're more protective now of the the country the sites studying their heritage than a place like greece or italy would be because i'm like i know a ton of people who can just apply sign up for some stuff and and like Go to Italy tomorrow. No, I think
2: that's a great observation. And I certainly agree. I think colonialism has a very strong foothold in Egypt, at least the remnants of it, right? And kind of the repercussions of what that period of Egyptian history was like in the modern era. Over the past couple centuries, I think foreign groups have really dominated the field of Egyptology and certainly whether it's actually physically taking artifacts back to their home countries or even kind of academically, like just the work that's been produced in Egypt. Certainly, Westerners have dominated the field for a long time. But I will say in terms of the application process and kind of the bureaucratic um, systems that we have to go through today, as far as I understand Any of the Egyptian teams that are working in Egypt, so solely like Egyptians who are excavating Egypt. At different sites, they have to go through a very similar, if not exactly the same process in order to get those permits and permissions to to dig. So this is this is a system that was established in the late 1800s with the service, um, the antiquity service, which was run by foreigners at the time. But, yeah, there's always been in Egypt since the late 1800s, a process of having to apply for permits and permissions to dig. Granted, how complicated that process has gotten over the years is maybe a result of colonialism or in part. But as far again, as far as I can tell, there's there's a similar process for both Western foreign groups as well as native indigenous Egyptian groups as well. And
1: Now, for my listeners who are not familiar with. I I don't really know who might not know the story of Tut, but since we've mentioned him a lot, um, you know, that seemed like I, I mean, yes, it was a very long time ago, but it seems so different because, I mean, that was like an era where I, I think some people still sit here and say, how on earth did Howard Carter just get himself there and start doing some digging stuff and then just like finds, you know, random entrance to tomb. Um, but this was a, a very different era. But. Um, but like, you know, that that couldn't happen today anywhere, right? Like, you can't just have rich people. Now, we still do have patronage systems, but I'm like,
2: we don't have like rich people running around being like,
1: I'm going to just throw money at this. Go do the thing, right?
2: Certainly, the field has changed in that regard since 1922, um, since the discovery of Tut. So yeah, the, the whole the whole lead up to the discovery of Tut. I mean, as as you're hinting at is, you know, there was an archaeologist, Howard Carter, who was partnered with um, his patron, Lord Carnarvon, who was an English lord from the UK. He was sponsoring, Lord Carnarvon was sponsoring these excavations in the Valley of the Kings from, I think, 1916, 1917 until 1922, when they discovered the Tomb of Tutankhamun. and um, they, the two of them had partnered and worked together previously in Egypt at different sites up in the Delta, out in Luxor, at different tombs and different areas. But their goal was always to, to dig in the Valley of the Kings. And so, yeah, at that time, it was common for a system that we call partage or division of finds. Yeah, these kind of wealthy sponsors would put all this money into these excavations because at the time, half of the finds would end up going to the sponsor of the dig. There there were a few exceptions to this rule, you know, if a tomb was found intact or deemed of like cultural importance to Egypt, the antiquity service could retain everything, but probably nine out of 10 times, I would say there was a division of fine. So this was a way that sponsors could get, build their personal Egyptology collections of artifacts. They could build a assemblage of artifacts that they could then donate or sell to different museums in the West. And so I think that was really one of the goals of Carnarvon and Carter's work was they were hoping to find something really sexy and really cool in the Valley of the Kings that they could, you know, Lord Carnarvon could take half of it home and the other half could stay in Egypt. And yeah, really the discovery of King Tut's tomb in 1922 and kind of the realization of how important this find was, um, even though it was not an intact royal burial, it had been robbed twice in antiquity, that discovery was kind of a kickstart for changes to that rule in Egypt. And in the case of King Tut, fortunately, everything stayed in Egypt, nothing left from the tomb. Legally, I should add, There's there's been pieces discovered since that uh, were quietly taken out of Egypt and sent abroad. But um, yeah, the majority of the collection is in Cairo today. And I think that's a good thing. It was such a unique find for Egypt and really for the history of Egyptology and ancient Egyptian history that it's important that the whole collection stayed together. And so, because there's other tomb assemblages that we have that are split between museums in the West and uh, museums in Cairo. So one example is um, there's a tomb assemblage uh, where half of it is in New York and the other half is in Cairo. So it's a little frustrating in terms of trying to study the assemblage as a whole and trying to put things back together when you're having to jump between two different countries.
1: Oh, I bet it's frustrating. I bet. Uh, I think when you when you go to the new Acropolis Museum in, in Greece, right, you see all the Caryatids except for the one that's missing. And so if you want to study all of them as a set, you have to study the ones that are all together in Athens and then fly to London to see just the one and then fly back. And then I know how, you know, popular myths and legends start, but I'm like, look, man, there were people who were really like, no, it's a thing and it got Carnarvon. What's the deal, man? Mummy's curse. Was it Was, it, was it really a curse or was it just like actually
2: bad luck? I, you know, certainly think that there are people in the past and maybe even people today who deserve the mummy's curse <laughs> or deserved it. But unfortunately, it is, you know, it's not as true as people want it to be or as people are led to believe. We have from ancient Egypt, we have very few texts, though they do exist, of kind of the deceased tomb owner saying warnings against like 'er ne'er-do-wells or people who might ruin kind of their offering rituals or might desecrate the tomb or or these kind of things. They're not quite as intense as, as what we have kind of promoted in like popular media today or in the movies or newspapers or whatever. So, you know, there's, there's no sayings like death will come on swift wings to those who disturb my tomb. There's nothing like that. But yeah, the whole story with um Carnarvon and his untimely death in 1923 and the whole promotion of King Tut's curse, that was all done up by the media and by the newspapers at the time and so it was a way to sell papers um and to make headlines. It's a, a longer complicated issue but essentially what had happened was when the tomb was discovered in 1922, Lord Carnarvon soon after sold exclusive publishing news rights to the times in London. So then all these other newspapers around the world, including newspapers in Egypt, which is like really bad, had to wait until the times in London or in the UK published anything before they could then report on what was going on in this tomb. And so once Carnarvon died, this whole story of the King's curse and, you know, um, all these mishaps that were happening to the, to the excavation crew and team, um, they were able to kind of make these headlines and and able to really sell more papers that way. And so that's kind of, um, where the whole origins of that in the modern era starts at least. So, so unfortunately no mummy's curse that, that we've yet to find, um, and I hope I'm not the first one to discover it or find it out. So. Well,
1: I would hope not either. That would be horrible. But, you know, it is It is interesting how something that is, again, very media-driven has become like a cultural, like, cornerstone. I mean, how many films or escape rooms or anything is all, mommy's curse. Gotta, You're in the tomb and you'll be cursed. You have to get out. Oh, my goodness. You know, Um we have so many things that kind of rely right on this age old propaganda thing, whatever we want to call it. Um, media frenzy at the time, I guess. Uh, it, it's, it's quite an, it's quite an interesting to see, you know, what sticks, what doesn't stick. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. We, we, I, I feel like I encounter that a lot. Maybe I don't. Um, I don't know why I feel like I do,
2: but... Um, prominent in the movies and stuff, for sure. And just, like... And people love... You know, like, the the latest mummy movies with, like, Brendan Fraser and just the whole reanimation of a dead dead corpse and the, the curse of the mummy and stuff. It's I, I'm not surprised that people will ask me about it quite frequently or more frequently than you would expect, at least. But...
1: I mean, from a reception standpoint, does it drive you crazy? I mean... I think for for like the non-egyptologist, if you, I'm assuming if you don't believe in all these crazy weird theories and things, um, you would kind of get just tired of like no 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 that's not how it went blah blah blah. But yeah, as an egyptologist yourself, when you see some of these crazier receptiony things and egyptomania you know does that does that drive you nuts or are
2: you you know things things like egyptomania or mummy's curse don't bother me so much i think in a way if it's keeping the public engaged and interested uh it helps give me work (laughs) and a job right so um i'm all for it and it gives me an outlet to share kind of my passions and my research with a broader public, oh, I think the aliens and just kind of like otherworldly supernatural powers and stuff. That's kind of what drives me crazy. Um, if I'm being totally frank and honest. Um, again, people can believe what they want to believe. I don't think they're right. So I always just tell them it's a very interesting interpretation of the evidence and just try to change the subject because I just can't really be bothered with biogeometry or. Ancient civilizations older than Egypt building things with technological, event, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, I'm very much an evidence based scholar and researcher. And to me, the evidence adds up that it was the ancient Egyptians doing all this stuff, not aliens, Atlantis, you know, uh, magnetic fields of energy, you know, whatever. It's
1: interesting. Well, the next time someone comes and asks you, I'll be like, oh, yes. The mummy or mummy's curse, whatever, fine. Calling pyramids grain silos. No, 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 no. Egyptology is is weird, man. But I mean, honestly, studying the ancient world is weird because, I mean, the the things people say or that you'll hear say, said. um, And it's interesting how many things like either you would assume might bother somebody but like it doesn't and then like the smallest other thing it will like um what was this an example this was kind of like along the sort of accuracy but it doesn't have to be so totally accurate because you want people to be interested and still um you know engaged with materials uh i was talking with someone just the other day about like assassin's creed origins and you know i was saying okay well i guess i've learned in the past few years that like it's decent and there's some things that are very accurate but then there's other like major things that are completely inaccurate so this is not good fine fine whatever but i got into a very specific debate about the like the language aspect um someone was saying you know they're very 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 bothered by the inclusion of like random I guess, like, Greek in the background when they're like, but we know what Coptic sounds like. Why didn't they put that there? We have, you know, evidence for all this other stuff. Why didn't they use this here? Like, I mean, you can forgive something like inclusion of mangoes because, well, it looks good on the color palette, and most people aren't going to care or know that, you know, mangoes are not, like, indigenous to Egypt. But something like the language aspect is something they couldn't get past. It's interesting. Do you have, do you notice little, like, idiosyncrasies in terms of, like, consistency within either yourself or other colleagues where you know like the mango's fine which random but like the language
2: no that's a great question i mean i haven't really noticed it too much off the top of my head trying to think. I know I've heard about this thing with the Assassin's Creed before in terms of the language used and stuff. And, you know, it's interesting because even though there's some Greek being spoken, I, as far as I understand, that very likely could have been a possibility up in Alexandria, which was very much a more Hellenistic kind of site and culture that was going on there than rather than ancient Egyptian. Certainly ancient Egyptian, the language would have been spoken up there, but there would have been a lot of Greek traders, the whole dynasty ruling at that time was Greek or Macedonian. So they would have been speaking Greek. We have documents in Greek from that era as well. You know, it's not that unfounded to say that like Greek would have been spoken in the streets, you know, or similar to today, you know, go to Chinatown here in LA, you know, at some point, I'm sure you're going to hear Chinese or Mandarin being spoken. Right, you know, versus, uh, well, no, it's in at Los Angeles. It had to be English, you know. So, so yeah, I don't really let that debate hold up much <laughs> when people talk about it. Yeah, within the field, I just, you know, nothing comes to mind or off the top of my head. I, it, I'm sure it exists. I'm sure there's things that people turn a blind eye to and just don't care about. Versus, there's hills or battles that they're gonna die on, you know, in terms of well, this has to be right, or this has to be said correctly, you know, so.
1: Now, I do kind of want to go back because we've touched on and around your current work on, on your dissertation. Is there a certain aspect or fun thing that you've discovered while you've been writing it? That you can share with us, because I know it's not published yet, so people can't go read something yet. And and once it's published, I'm sure we'll we'll link it back so people can go and find it. But since you have not completed it as of this recording, yeah, is there anything fun you want to spill about your cool research?
2: I'm at UCLA studying for my PhD. I'm in the last year of, of dissertating. Inshallah, fingers crossed. I am writing a dissertation on the state funeral in ancient Egypt. So I'm looking at that through the lens of the Valley of the Kings and the New Kingdom and a series of case studies of three different kings and how those burials happened and what those looked like. Um, so King Tutankhamun is one, uh, Merneptah is another, and Ramses Fourth is the third. And, you know, the state funeral in ancient Egypt, think of like the recent burial of Queen Elizabeth II, or the funeral of John F. Kennedy, or even the funeral of Nasser in Egypt in the 1970s. Huge events, huge crowds, you know, lots of pomp and circumstance and ceremony and all, and uh, all this kind of ideology and symbolism hidden in either the objects that are used or kind of the rituals and ceremonies that are performed so, you know, as a funerary archaeologist and Egyptologist, I'm studying ancient Egypt through this lens of, well, how can we reconstruct some of those events if at all? And what would be preserved in the archaeological record, either in texts or in objects or material culture or even the monuments themselves, right? These tombs that the pharaohs built in the Valley of the Kings. And so that's that's kind of all the work that I'm looking into and we we have this kind of stereotype Mostly in popular literature of a king's burial being this grand kind of procession out into the desert with every object for the burial being kind of paraded through the desert, you know, all the coffins, all the boxes, all the golden thrones and jewelry and whatever, kind of this huge kind of social economic display of power. And the work that I'm trying to do is trying to actually dispel that a bit and kind of disprove some... Some of, some of those kind of, let's say misconceptions. And one of the best examples that I can talk about right now is we have an ostracon from the reign of Merneptah, where in year seven of his 10 year reign. So about three, maybe four years before he dies, we have this text that talks about how the coffins of the king are actually already being placed inside his tomb and they're being worked on within the necropolis itself. So that's really interesting because it brings up this idea then, or this hypothesis that maybe the king didn't actually use his coffins at all in his final funeral, like the day of burial. Maybe the coffins were already placed within the tomb and it was just a matter of, you know, parading his mummified, fully embellished mummy out through the desert to the tomb. And in some ways that makes more sense, right? Because why... You know, if you can cut corners and, and take shortcuts and make the work easier, why would you, you know, drag out like these really heavy coffin sets of two or three coffins through the desert and use all this manpower to do so versus just kind of, you know, parading out, let's say, lighter kind of mummified body that's embellished with gold and jewels and whatever, and letting that kind of be the focal point of of the procession. and. And letting the people who are witnessing the funerary parade and this audience to this funeral ceremony, letting them see the dead king himself, you know, granted being transfigured into a deity, um, through the wrapping and, and the mummification process and everything. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's little interesting things like that that I'm trying to look more into and trying to build arguments off of that we maybe need to change our idea of what this Um, What these funeral ceremonies looked like and what this power transition looked like in ancient Egypt, right from a dead ruler to the now living next succeeder uh, successor (laughs) of that king. So,
1: oh, that sounds so cool. And okay, so I love everything about that. It sounds like there could be some mystery, but also a lot of illuminating evidence at the same time. And. How on earth did you get to a place where you could narrow it down because, you know, there's there's so much to be interested in. And I feel like, you know, the problem I came up with when when I was writing my master's thesis was there's there's broad things. There's so much. But how how do I, you know, pare it down into something manageable? I've
2: always been interested in royal burials in the Valley of the Kings since I started studying Egyptology. I almost did a master's thesis on royal burials. And fortunately, I chose a different topic, which um, has served me well over the years um, in terms of training and discipline and kind of research interests and stuff. But for the PhD, I still, you know, I spent... A good three, four years trying to find a dissertation topic. I fluctuated, I think honestly, I probably had about eight different things that I ran by my advisors. And even my old master's advisor, I would I would shoot ideas by her as well. And ultimately it was during a seminar that I took with Kara Cooney at UCLA on Daryl Medina. When I started to dive more deeply into royal burials and the workmen's involvement with those burials, I started coming across these different texts that were talking about the work crew preparing specifically the material culture, right? The objects for the king's burial. So like this ostracon of Maranepta, where they bring in the coffins in year seven. So that was like the first time I came across that text. And then there were other texts that talked about, you know, the crew would, you know, hear that a king died and they take about four or five days of a mourning period where they wouldn't work. And so these little hints of like what was going on in terms of the lead up to a king's burial and how the crew was preparing for that sparked my interest in it. And I realized that not a lot of work had been done on it. There was, there's definitely some, there's definitely people who talk about objects that would have been included in a royal burial. There are Daryl Medina text specialists who have been able to kind of reconstruct some of the events leading up to a king's burial and what those would have looked like. But nobody had really, as far as I can tell, and still have been looking for and not found, um, had looked at it through the lens of this kind of transition of power. And, you know, how does a king... Use a timeline to prepare for that funeral. And this was really fascinating to me. And that's really what led me to pursue this topic. And I think it's so important, whether it's a master's or a PhD, you've got to be interested in what you're writing about. Because if you're only half invested in it, it's going to be a long two or three years to get that dissertation or that thesis done. Um, And so this is a topic that, I mean, three years later is still holding my interest. And um, fortunately, I'm finding out some really interesting kind of facts and phenomena along the way. Well,
1: I can't wait to see what it looks like when it's done. I'm sure it'll be super exciting. Out of curiosity, had you watched Kara's show out of Egypt before coming here or not? Because I know it deals a lot with like burials and pyramids and stuff.
2: I don't remember watching it like as a kid or growing up before coming to UCLA. I have since watched some of the episodes. I actually use her out of Egypt show in one of my courses that I teach here at UCLA, The Art of Death. Um, It's a combo art history, archaeology of death class that I sometimes teach in the summer units. I've used that show as kind of a way for students to kind of see how we can connect the ancient world and ancient perceptions of death and burial to kind of our modern experiences, whether it's in our own culture or in other kind of global contemporary cultures as well. So I think that's a great way to kind of, um, use an educational platform like the discovery channel or the history channel to kind of make ancient history more relevant to today.
1: Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I am, only a couple years behind you. But yeah, I definitely remember. I think that was part of the reason I got into Egypt, because I watched her show um, in like seventh, sixth, seventh grade, whatever. And I was like, this is so cool. Maybe I should study that. So uh, it's funny how life comes full circle. I would love to hear more, but we don't have all day uh, to talk about your and, and then probably the last thing you do want to talk about actually is the dissertation because you're probably just like, I don't want to stare at this. I just want to write it and be done. So I will not subject you to that. But so there are kind of three sort of questions I like to ask uh, to end the interview portion of uh, the podcast. And the first is, you know, as an undergrad or certainly now, I suppose, as a, as a grad student, you know, but did, do did you or do you attend your professor's office hours? And it doesn't have to be, I guess, in the most formal sense, but you go talk to them? I
2: definitely did as an undergrad. There were several classes that I, you know, maybe once or twice a quarter, I've always been the quarter system. Um, I would go visit professors during their office hours, everything from help on an assignment, kind of like a research paper, let's say where to go find resources, um, to, you know, asking advice about, well, how do I, how do I get into grad school? You know, oh, I really want to be an Egyptologist too. Like, what does that look like? Like, how how do I do that? I think it's so important to be able to sit down with your professors or your teachers, chat with them, and and have that face time with them too, right? And it's I know now as like an instructor or a TA at UCLA, I know it's helpful for me to be able to put faces to names and not just kind of have this like anonymous group of students that I'm teaching, but really to make those connections and to better serve my students by meeting with them and being able to chat with them about their research and how they can improve their grades or kind of their writing styles or, or you know, whatever, whatever you need to talk about. So yeah, definitely go to office hours.
1: Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, so, I mean, you can choose from either your experience as a student yourself or as a TA on the other side. Um, you know, do you have a, a particularly fun or meaningful memory or just something that happened
2: during an office hours conversation fun or meaningful memory i don't know if anything comes to mind i can't really remember anything i mean i do, what i do remember is my as a student, as an undergrad, my several meetings with my undergrad kind of advisor, Stuart Tyson Smith at UCSB, I, he was the only Egyptologist we had on campus. He actually is more a new biologist now than a Egyptologist, but um, he helped me a lot with my grad applications, writing me letters of rec kind of strategizing about where to apply for schools, how to, what classes I should be taking to pursue Egyptology. So there's not any one specific memory from meeting with him that I remember, but I do remember overall, just those moments of being able to meet with him and him taking the time to kind of help me on the right path to pursuing a career in Egyptology.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, everyone needs a good mentor. I only asked because I, my professor, my favorite professor in undergrad had a chocolate drawer. And so I would um, go and just steal chocolate. And I guess, I mean, you've, you've already touched on it because the, the last question really would have been just, you know, if you were going to give a 30-second elevator pitch to students for the importance of attending office hours.
2: Go to office hours. No, just go to office hours. They're they're set time that the professor or the teacher has to be there anyway. So you might as well take advantage. And, you know, um, it never hurts to ask questions and get clarification on things, whether it's stuff in life or... School work or pursuing grad school or whatever, you know.
1: Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, you know. Uh, so at the end of each podcast, I ask each guest if they will read Shelley's Ozymandias poem, and then after having read it, I would be very interested to know your brief thoughts on, you know, what does this poem? What do you think it means, or what does it mean to you? It's often been cited as a very influential poem, and I'd I'd love to know if, if you agree.
0: Go to Bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's
2: Bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command The Lone and Level Sands Stretch Far Away. Um, And I think for me, you know, uh, from past memories and even just reading it now, what this to me just calls like recalls, I guess, just that like romantic era of like exploration and like discovery in Egypt. You know, it's all about this ruin at the Ramesseum and Luxor. And so that for me as an archaeologist is like the coolest part of the job is just being able to explore and discover and find things new and kind of going up to these wrecks or kind of these ruins and trying to reconstruct the stories, right? Like what was going on and stuff. And for sure, this poem, I think to me recalls a lot of those kind of feelings and joys that I experience as an archaeologist and you know, being able in one way or another to communicate with the past, you know, whether it's Ozymandias, the statue talking to you, or whether it's you as the modern day archaeologist or explorer kind of going around these sites and trying to reconstruct the stories that were told there in the past. I
1: always love to hear what Egyptologist friends think because I'm like, well this this is your this is this is in your wheelhouse, guys. This is Ramesses. So and it's interesting because when I look at it from a very more political science, I guess, angle, you know, it also talks about monumentality and the themes of, you know, the ephemeral nature of power, whether it's political or human and and all these these wonderful, weighty subjects. And, you know, then there's the whole it's told from the third person. But also Shelley was writing off the statue that was being brought from Egypt to the UK. And and it's a whole thing. But, um, you know, so so kind of thinking about it in this way. The last question I actually ask every guest is if you think about our modern society today right now, you know, do we have. A sort of modern ozymandias something that we thought was so amazing or great and it's gonna last forever but also we don't know like like you know like maybe almost like a a modern memento mori
2: it's pretty terrible to say but i feel like the first thing that comes to mind it's like almost like america like as a as a government and a society right now it's kind of like are we kind of gonna start repeating history here soon um in some ways i hope not but um yeah, perhaps our influence on the world stage isn't quite as, as it once was. I mean, similar, I guess, Great Britain, right? This huge empire that's now shrunk down just to three quarters of an island, essentially. It's like, ugh. you know, that could also be a more modern day Ozymandias as well. And, um, different scales, of course, but, um, th- those are the two that come to mind to me, I think. Let's talk about power and politics and and everything. So
1: yeah, it's a it's a great answer. I mean, because I like I spoke to someone a year ago who said "Pax Americana" like without hesitation, and I was like, "Damn, you're on that quickly." So yeah, no, I agree. Because I, I I was talking the other night with somebody about I, we started with like the SAG after workers' strike and WGA strike, and then we went somehow from that to literally. America's going into a death spiral. Look at the Roman Empire. And I was like, "No, stop." I mean, yes, I study history, but also no, stop, stop. I don't want to I don't want to live through that. So, uh it's it's quite an interesting time to be alive. So I kind of lied in that the last, last, last thing I'm going to ask you is where can people find you if they want to learn more about either your research or the like travels to Egypt? If you put that online. Yeah. Where can people find you?
2: No, that's great. I would say my two places to go, if you're interested, um, would either be my academia edu page. So you should be able just to Google, I think, Nick Brown, UCLA, academia edu. My page should be one of the first ones to pop up. Um, definitely go there if you're interested in the types of research that I've been able to publish and put out there. Also, there is my Instagram page. It's a mix of my personal life, but also my work life right now. So that the handle for Instagram is NB4326. So N is in Nick, B is in Brown, 4326. And if you look that up on Instagram, you should be able to find me there as well. Um, and see kind of like what my life is like in Egypt when I'm over there and what life is like for an Egyptologist here in los angeles
1: great well we will make sure to link both of those uh in the show notes so people can go and find you and follow you because they should but um yeah i there's so much more that we didn't get to that i was i was trying desperately to fit in but um just couldn't do it within the uh roughly hour that we've we've gotten so um we will have to have you back in some capacity i don't know how yet but i'm going to make it happen uh but uh thank you so so much, though, for for taking time out of your busy morning and, you know, dissertating and all that stuff to, to come and, and join me on the podcast this morning.
2: Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. So thank you.
0: Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings.